Well, over the uh, course of the summer, we uh, were studying wisdom literature. We were working our way through Proverbs and uh, looking at a number of the ways in which uh, we take the precepts of God's word and walk them out practically, uh, of course, from the, uh, from the momentum of the goodness of God's grace uh, of being uh, accepted by him because of Jesus and as his children, being really thoughtful about what it looks like as we uh, put our faith on the ground. We're, we're going to continue to study wisdom from now until Christmas. And we're going to do that with a unique book in the New Testament, which is the book of James. And the book of James is an epistle that is dedicated to uh, wisdom. It is like wisdom literature in the New Testament. It's unique in the sense um, that when you read through the book of James, uh, you don't find James defining uh, or expounding on who Christ is and what Christ has done. You actually find that the majority of the book of James, almost the entirety of the book of James, focuses on how we live in light of who Christ is and in light of what Christ has done. And if you've been in church circles for a while, you've probably inevitably come across a situation, conversation, or uh, perhaps a teaching where uh, Paul and James are put in a, uh, pitted together against each other uh, inexplicably, and, and which is an unhelpful way to look at it because there is a very famous uh, phrase in the book of James, even if people have never read the book of James, they've heard the phrase, faith without works is dead. And so unnecessarily, Paul and James get kind of put in this theological cage matched together. It sounds a little bit like, in the left corner, wearing the grace alone shorts is Paul. And in the right corner, wearing the faith without works is dead bandanas, James. Let's get ready for theological rumble. And it's just unnecessary because they're not disagreeing with each other, and I'm not going to be unpacking uh, that co- uh, the, how they cohere today. I'm going to be doing that in a couple of weeks when we get to that passage. But the point is that what this text gives us is very unique in the, in the New Testament. In just 108 short verses, we get 59 instructions on Christian living, 59 ways in which we are guided thoughtfully, practical commands to the imitation of Jesus. But while we are being called to the imitation of Jesus, we are also confronted with our inability to embody those commands perfectly and perpetually. And so simultaneously, James is drawing us, the reader, the audience, to the boundless mercy and grace of Jesus. Our text for today is James chapter 1. We're going to look this morning at the first four verses. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. This is God's word. Now, in order to understand the tone of the book of James, we need to understand a little bit about the author. So I want to just give you a little bit of background here. Notice that it starts out, and he just calls himself James, uh, a servant of God. He doesn't say uh, James, son of so-and-so, or related to such-and-such, which quite often throughout the New Testament, uh, literary scholars point out that um, authors uh, may at times connect themselves in such a way that you can, it's kind of like a footnote, you can trace it back. Here he just calls himself James. And what's interesting about that is because this is a bit of an ancient literary tip. 
if you just use your name and you're writing a letter that's that's going um, uh, and you're, you have a very common name, your name is James, and you call yourself a servant of God and everybody who considers themselves a Christian is a servant of God, and you're sending a letter, you've got to be really well known to be able to do that. This is an ancient literary tip. We'll say it to you this way. It's like if you if you said, oh my goodness, I was in Starbucks and I saw Chris. That's not enough. Who are we talking about? Chris Pratt, Chris Hemsworth, who, 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 Chris Kringle. Who are we talking about? You can't just say, oh my goodness, I was in Starbucks and I saw Ryan. Which Ryan? Ryan Gosling, Ryan Seacrest, Ryan Reynolds. And you're like, no, I saw Ryan Aarons. Oh, even better. Wow. Okay. You can't just drop one name. But if I, but if I said to you, church, I was in Starbucks this week and I saw Beyonce. You get it. Church, I was in, I was in Starbucks this week and I saw Bono. Y'all get it. One name, it's all you need. This is what James does. The reason I'm belaboring this point is because James is not just a disciple of Jesus. James was the little brother of Jesus. James grew up sharing a bed, having breakfast, running around in the backyard with Jesus. He's Jesus' little brother. Now, I want you to think very thoughtfully, thoughtfully about something here. And I want to say this particularly to those of you who might have joined the live stream this morning that are exploring Christian faith. If you had a sibling who was a fraud and a liar and they started a cult and they had a massive following and 40 years after their death, there was a massive global movement that was moving in their name and you were going to write something, what would you write? I'll tell you what you'd write. You'd write a tell-all book. And your book would be like, listen, I grew up with this person. I know them intimately. I know them more than anybody. And here's the dirt. If anybody could write a tell-all book on a fraud, it's their little brother. But what we get here from James, who writes, James, who had become the leader of the church in Jerusalem, James, who had become in the first century, one of the four pillars, Paul, Peter, John, James, this is who he is. He grew up with Jesus. What did he write? He writes and he calls Jesus God and Lord. In the Greek, Theos et Christos Kyrios. Christos Kyrios, Jesus is Lord, Christ is Lord, which is a big deal because in the first century, everybody was saying Kaiser et Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. But the little brother of Jesus, who grew up with Jesus, can you even fathom what that would be like? As I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking about this. Unfathomable, what would that be like growing up with Jesus as a little kid? going to make peanut butter and jam sandwich. And little James goes to the cupboard. And he's like, Mom, we're out of bread. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Can you imagine growing up with Jesus? This is what he writes. He writes that he's the Lord. He writes that he is divine. This is what he says. Would you, a reasonable, intelligent person who grew up uh, an educated uh, Jewish young man, raised to believe that God was transcended over all of creation, that God could not be a man because he was exalted high and above over all humanity. Could you write and say that your big brother that you grew up with was God, was divine, was the Lord? Unless he was. James writes this down. And James did not always believe that Jesus was Lord. In John chapter 7, we learn that Jesus' brothers scorned him. They didn't believe him. Scholars believe that included James. So what happened? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. 
And in amongst those hundreds and hundreds of people, we get a little glimpse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7 that Jesus appears to his little brother. The risen Christ appears to James. And this is so significant. Church, this is so significant for those of you who are exploring Christian faith this morning because we don't have any, rec- we don't have any re- record of what that conversation was like between uh, Jesus and his little brother. But I'll take a page out of Dr. Tim Keller's uh, textbook and I'll, say it, I'll consider it this way. James, like all of us, is the prodigal son. And in the story of the prodigal son, the only way that the prodigal son could be brought in was at the expense of the older brother. Because after the prodigal son took his half of the inheritance, when, the, when, the, when he returns, the only way for him to be brought back in is for when the father says, kill the calf, make the meal, give him a robe, give him a ring. The reason why the elder brother is angry in that story is he's like, that's my, that's my fatted calf, that's my feast, that's my robe, that's my ring. Everything you are doing to bring this little degenerate back into the family is costing me. It's coming out of my inheritance. That's why the elder brother in Jesus' parable was so angry. And here's the resurrected Jesus appearing to his little brother and his little brother now being confronted with the risen Christ, realizing he's the prodigal son. And that for him to be brought into right relationship with God, it's at his elder brother's expense, his perfect life, his divine, his atoning death and his divine resurrection. This is the James that wrote this book. This is the James that wrote Jesus Christ is God and Lord. And the reason why this, of course, is so significant is because the entire rest of this book, after he establishes who Christ is and all of his grace, after James is, is uh, honest about the, trans, the, the transformative power in his own life that's led him to be a, uh, that's led him to, uh, to be a leader of the church of Jerusalem is because of the grace of Jesus. That's all because of grace that the rest of this entire book of James flows out into this instruction. And really what James is doing, and the reason why I'm really belaboring this point to get a sense of who James is, is because James knows that he, he has been changed by saving grace. So the question he wants to ask is, what does true saving faith look like? What does true saving faith do in a person? If you have the audacity to claim that you've been saved by the scandalous grace of Jesus. James is saying, I grew up with him. And I want to know, is there any renewal? Will we resemble him? Will we begin to imitate him? And so from this, the very first instruction that we're given in the book is what to do in trouble. And it's very interesting that the very first instruction we're given right after James says that his brother, his big brother is Lord in Christ, is trouble, is because nothing reveals who your Savior is like trouble. Nothing reveals what your functional Messiah is like having trials and trouble. In the midst of trials and trouble, which are inevitable, they always cause all of us to run to our functional Saviors. And so you'll notice the text says, when you fall into trials, when you fall into trouble, not if, when. This is because anything that happens to any human being can happen to a Christian. His audience is uh, Jewish Christians. You see it talks about the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, the diaspora. He's mainly speaking to a Jewish audience. So what he's saying is anything that happens to any human can happen to you. So when that does happen to you, which savior are you running to? 
What are you doing in that trouble? History teaches us that anything can happen to anybody. The Bible teaches us that anything can happen to anybody. Our own personal experience teaches us that anything can happen to anybody. And so where do we go in trouble? You see, for us as modern North American Christians, we are one of the most worried and anxious and stressed out and squirmish cultures uh, in all of world history when it comes to suffering and when it comes to trials. Because globally speaking, the other cultures of the world, culturally and historically, have believed in some form of a divine and have believed that in some sense, this short existence is not all there is, regardless of what those spiritual beliefs were. But unique to the North American uh, and perhaps Western, uh, the European context, is this idea of the secular. Secular comes from the Latin word, seaclum, uh, which means the right here and now. It means limited to this lifespan. Secular means the now. So if therefore all you have is the now, you have to have your joy and your enjoyment now. You have to have your best life now. Anything that comes in, the trials and the troubles that, are, that come in and cause things to go wrong, like a sickness or a disease or a loss of income or employment or a tragedy or a global pandemic, these things are eating away at your now. And if all you have is the now, the longer you know the pandemic drags on, the longer that trial drags on, the longer that trouble drags on, it is eating away at the now. And in the secular worldview, all you have is now. And so as a result of this, we become you know, undone and easily outraged or dejected or destroyed, uh, fixated on ourselves. We'll either trample uh, whatever's in our way or whoever's in our way or escape or run away from what's ever in the way of our joy because it's infringing on the now. And so uh, this joy of the secular is hopelessly tethered to the fragility of the now. And so this is why the most popular distortions of Christianity right now in Canada, uh, the distortions are really an appeal to tickle our ears to say, you know, if you trust God and obey God, everything's going to work out in the now. And you can somehow, through, I'll borrow a phrase uh, from sociologist uh, Melinda Lundquist, she calls it a moralistic therapeutic deism, meaning uh, if I'm good, that makes God happy. And if I'm uh, kind of, uh, you know, God exists to make my life comfortable. God exists to take my problems away. God exists to make my life good. And so the way for my life to be good and comfortable is to obey him. So it's moralistic. It's just, it becomes like a formula. Obedience equals blessing. The end. Obey and you're blessed. The end. And the problem, of course, is it creates massive crisis of faith. So James... On the heels of that one phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord, he's expecting us to be moved by the tidal wave of implications behind that phrase. And he says, now, what are you going to do in trouble? What are you going to do in your trial? And what he says we're supposed to do is consider it. You look at the text and it says, you know, you um, consider the trial. As we consider and as we think deeply about our life in that context of Christ as Lord, we will then learn how to have joy in trouble. And I can't think of anything more relevant in 2020 when every headline, everything in your newsfeed sounds a little bit like, ah, ah, 
that was a pretty good impression, I think, of 2020. And so we are supposed to consider deeply Jesus Christ and his lordship, the risen Lord, who, G, who James looked his little brother, the risen Lord in the eye, and that had an implication on his life. He became a leader in the church. He was transformed by grace, and he's calling us to be transformed by it. And so he brings us uh, here. I and mean, when you look carefully at the text, you find that, you know, Christians don't find joy in the actual trouble. We're not masochists. Oh, I'm so happy this is happening to me, weirdly. No, that's not where the joy is. And neither are, so we're not masochists, but we're also not hedonists. Where James isn't like, hey, don't worry, silver lining theology, once it all passes, once it goes away, once life is good again, then you have joy. That's not it either. It's simultaneous. In the midst of the trial, in the midst of the joy, there is, there is a, uh, sorry, in the midst of the trouble, there is a joy that's available. And we're instructed to consider what God gives us in the trouble, what God does in us in the trouble, what God builds in us, forges in us in in the trouble and through the trouble. So it's not just thinking happy thoughts and trying to muster up and spread some positive vibes. It says in the testing of our faith, God by his grace will develop perseverance in you. He will use that perseverance to finish his work in you. He will mature you. He will complete you. This is where this goes as we turn, not to a functional savior, not to something infinitely smaller than Jesus, but this is what God builds in us as we turn to Jesus. And so when you think about suffering, really it is when we're losing something that we think we need. And so when the brokenness of this world plays itself out in our lives and trouble comes, or God in his wisdom permits the trouble to come, or God in his wisdom causes the trouble to come, because as he sees fit, he's going to actually bring us through that trouble so that we survive, so that we lose the thing we think we need, and yet we stand with an endurance in our hearts and our souls because of what God has built in us. And God builds something in us by carrying us through that trouble. That trouble. To borrow from theologian John Calvin, he, he would often say, and you've heard me quote this many times, there are many times in our life when it seems as though the arrow of God is pointed at us, but it is never pointed at us. It is pointed at the snake that's wrapped itself around our necks. And so God forges all of this steadfastness and faith and strength in us through the trouble. You know, there's people that you and I can't relate to or have compassion for or learn to care about unless we go through trouble, unless we go through uh, trial and get a taste of it. And so Jesus Christ, the Lord of grace, he carries us through and he forges compassion and perseverance in these, these character traits in us. The text says that the testing of faith, it produces perseverance, which begs the question, when trouble comes, do we turn to Jesus or do we quickly dethrone Jesus? Do we quickly dethrone Jesus and immediately run to something infinitely smaller than Jesus? Do we turn to our career to find solace there and hope and try and maneuver our way into greater degrees of success? Do we turn to our education? And try and find, garner a sense of identity and a sense of security because we're going to, if we work hard enough, we'll get some letters after our name. And that's going to ensure that our future is secure. 
Do we open up our uh, portfolio online and look at our savings accounts and our investments and, and find great hope and security by counting our dollars and looking at the money that we've squirreled away and said, okay, everything's going to be fine because of this mini Jesus, because my saving account is going to save me, the investments that I have. Do we look to our health and our strength, the vitality of our bodies? Do we run to the gym and drink our herbal teas in the sense, hoping that strength and vitality of our own physical stature is going to give us the peace that our soul is craving for when, when trouble comes? Where do we turn? What are we going uh, toward? What we find is the text says, count it all joy when the trouble comes because by God's grace, you will persevere. Stay put, James says. Don't move, he says. Press on. How does all this happen? How does turning to Jesus and just staying put in the midst of a trial and a trouble, spiritually speaking, I mean, how does this produce anything in us? It happens Again, by that one phrase that he starts this whole book out about the Lordship of Christ. If you're going to have endurance forged in you, if you're going to endure, have to meditate on the one who endured for you. If you're going to have perseverance and be able to face on Monday what you have to face on Monday, you've got to dial it back and think about the one who persevered for you. This word endurance in the Greek, which uh, means to remain under or to patiently, steadfastly remain behind. It's an interesting word. It's, it's the narrative that you've seen in literature and in film all the time where there's a huge calamity about to happen and the hero in the story says, you go ahead, I'll stay here and hold them off. That's the Greek word for endurance. I'll patiently stay here. I'll steadfastly remain in the midst of this. I'll take the tidal wave. You go ahead to safety. That's the word. And so if James is calling you and I to be able to stand in the midst of the trial and the trouble and take the tidal wave of trouble against us, how are you and I supposed to do that? There's only one way. We have to meditate, fill our minds, be very thoughtful about the one who stood in that gap for, for us, Jesus Christ, who took uh, the brunt of the judgment of God, who faced death and hell for us. That type of thing dials you out of the secular. It dials you out of the immediacy of the now. It dials you out of the immediacy of the problem. Not that we're in denial and we pretend like the problem doesn't exist. You know, we stick our heads in the sand. It transforms the way in which we view the temporal challenge that we're dealing with. Whether it's in your body or in your life or in a relationship, it will literally produce endurance in you. It will give you the strength to stand there and take it and go through it because it's spirit wrought. It's something that God does in you. It's not, it's, it's, this is the uh, good news that's in the midst of this, this text. You think about it. There is nothing more moving in a story than the person who says, you go ahead, I'll stay here. I'll hold them off and they die. This, of course, is the gospel. There's nothing more moving than someone who stays put. Right? My homiletics prof, Brian Chappelle, he told a story that happened in his hometown of these boys who were playing along the river in these huge banks of sludge and sand that had been brought out of the river and kids liked to play there. And it was dangerous because the sun would bake the sand on the outside of the mound. And so it was strong enough that little kids could run on top of it, but it was very dangerous because underneath the sand was still wet. And if you cracked through, you would sink into the sand. 
two little boys went and they were playing on the edge of the sand. And when they didn't come home for hours and hours, the parents sent out a search party. And when they went down to the river, there they found one little boy up to his chest with his arms out like this on the top of the sand pile crying. And they said, where's your brother? And the little boy said, I'm standing on his shoulders. That's what it means to endure. The big brother sank into the sand and let the little brother stand on his shoulders. You see, when, when little brother James, who wrote this book, looked big brother Jesus in the eye after the resurrection, James, James wrote this whole book standing on big brother Jesus' shoulders. So that's why the tone of the entire letter is, if you have the audacity to say you've been saved by the scandalous grace of Jesus, there's only one logical conclusion, and that is that inevitably and over time and gradually you're going to desire at your core to resemble him because anybody who stands on his shoulders would do so. And so when trouble comes, when trials come, you and I are not the best versions of ourselves. You and I, in the midst of trial and trouble, are actually terrible versions of ourselves quite often. Sinful versions of ourselves come out. And here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ died and went to the cross for the, for the sinful, dead version of us while we were dead in our sin. He will not abandon you and I in our troubles when we show him that sinful side of ourselves. This is why the text says, consider, count it joy and consider deeply what God will produce in you in the trial, in the trouble, as you meditate on the implications of Christos Kyrios, Christ is Lord. That will do something in you like it did something in James. It will produce something in you like it produced something in James. If Jesus didn't abandon you at the cross to make you his child, he's not going to abandon you now, the sinful version of yourself, now that you already are his child. So you can persevere in the trials and the troubles. And so the one who took on all of this, this suffering, he transforms us through the suffering. Maybe you're listening to this and you're sick and you're frustrated and the doctors throw their hands up and they say, we're trying, we don't have answers for you. You're sick and you don't want to be. Maybe you are single and you don't want to be. Maybe you are married and you don't want to be. Maybe you are going through estranged relationships and you don't know how to handle them. Maybe you have a threat to your business because you own a company and this pandemic has turned everything on its head. And so you're looking into the future like it's a bit of a fog and there's a struggle and a suffering and a trial there. Maybe you're on the other side of that and you're hoping you have a job at the end of the month or the end of the year because again, you, there's an uncertainty and a volatility. Maybe in any of these things or all of these things, you're experiencing trouble. Where are you experiencing the trouble? Consider the joy in not making any of those things your Jesus. Consider the joy and the power and the strength that is available to you in not taking that trial, taking that trouble, and deciding that it's the most important thing in your life that gets resolved. But rather not making it your Jesus, but turning to Jesus and allowing his grace to carry you through what it is that you're facing now. This will build resilience in you. This will bring maturity to you. And this resilience and this maturity comes as daily you and I continually turn to Jesus. 
And so the rest of this epistle, it flows from this place. It flows from here, calling us to the imitation of Christ from this you know, joy and humble confidence that James garnered as he looked into the eyes of the risen Christ, his big brother. And as James stood there face to face with the jaw-dropping reality that the resurrection means the end of trouble, he writes these words 40 years later saying, count it all joy when you find yourself in the midst of that trouble. So let's press on, church. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Let the enormity of what Christ has done forge wisdom and joy and endurance and resilience in you. Let's pray.